if we're having a chat, Omid, and you're thinking this is what you want to do, it is one of the questions that I would ask you, like you've found a site, great. Have you taken a specialist fit-out company through there to have a look at it? Yeah, because it's super important. What you and I might see from an uh, like an aesthetics point of view is like, wow, that's amazing, that's perfect. Yeah. But you need to have a specialist walk through because if, as Kent will tell you, there might be other factors that, that are not as visible to you or I that, you know, things like cutting concrete for plumbing and everything could mm-hmm. be a, a very significant expense that if you don't know up front, it becomes your problem once you sign that tenancy lease or agree to buy that building. Hello and welcome back for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Azami. Today is episode two of a four-part financial mini-series brought to you by my good friends at Credible. If you missed it, be sure to check out episode one called Good Debt, Bad Debt with Glenn Stewart where we covered various topics in terms of what is needed to secure a loan to open or purchase a dental practice. In this episode, I'm joined with Kelly Gall and Kent Desarmia. Kelly is a director of commercial business with Credible and has assisted countless dental professionals fulfill their practice dreams. For over a decade, she has been providing financial solutions to the dental and medical community. Her high level of service and valued expertise have seen Kelly become a trusted advisor and a good friend to the dental profession. Kent has been working within the dental health and healthcare market for over 20 years. He has a background in equipment sales and working with various brands such as Plan Mecca, Serona, ADEC, as well as Zeiss Microscopes. For the past eight years, Kent has been the National Business Development Manager with Medifit Design and Construct. Medifit is a trusted name in the dental practice fit-out and construction space and has completed over 600 projects nationally since their inception in 2002. Having the opportunity to talk with Kent and Kelly on this podcast was amazing. I had the opportunity to ask questions and go through the process of once you have secured funding for a dental practice, what are the next steps? How do you decide whether you want to purchase or acquire an existing dental practice and the metrics and questions that go along with that decision making? If you're choosing to do a scratch practice, Kent walks us through how to scope out potential sites, some of the things to look out for that can propose headaches in the construction and fit-out process, and also some of the timelines, costs, and challenges that are associated with opening a dental practice from scratch in terms of the fit-out. I hope you guys enjoyed this interview. We cover a lot of ground and a lot of high-yield topics in terms of opening versus acquiring a dental practice, so I hope you guys enjoy it. This episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast has been proudly supported by specialist medical lender Credible. If you need finance, be it for your personal or professional needs, the team at Credible know the drill. From home loans and car loans to equipment and fit-out loans, or even commercial property and practice purchases, the finance specialist at Credible will provide a tailored solution for you. Learn more at www.credible.com.au, that's C-R-E-D-A-B-L.com.au, where you can learn more and you can live chat with a member of the team 24-7. As always, if you're new to the Newbie Dentist podcast, welcome and be sure to check out the previous interviews. I have had the privilege of interviewing some amazing clinicians from around the world over the past few years. 
If you're an existing listener, thank you for your ongoing support of the Newbie Dentist podcast. If you haven't already, it would mean a lot to me if you could head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating and leave a review. It really does help the podcast get broader reach and exposure. Without further delay, enjoy my interview with Kelly and Kent. Welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, giving a voice to young clinicians worldwide. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to be the dental industry leader in in-depth, informative and motivational interviews with some of the world's leading clinicians, academics and experts. With your host, Dr. Omid Azami. We're joined today by Kelly and Kent. Kelly works with Credible and is involved in the lending side of things with helping dentists looking to get into practice ownership. And Kent works with Medifit, who is involved with you know practice fit outs and construction side of setting up dental practices. So I'm really excited to talk to you both today, get two different perspectives in terms of the practice, you know, the process of the decision-making firstly of buying or starting a practice. And then Kent, definitely picking your, picking your brain a little bit about what to expect in terms of fit outs and time and costs and all those sort of things involved in the decision making. So Kelly, I guess we'll, we'll start with you. You know, how I want to frame this is you're, you're a young dentist and you're, you're looking into getting into practice ownership. How would you start that conversation? If I approached you guys and I'm looking into getting in and I'm not sure if I want to buy a practice or if I want to, you know, start one from scratch, how would that decision making go? Thanks, Obed. It's quite an interesting process because I think for the most of the people that we speak to, they tend to be one foot in one camp or the other. So some people are absolutely only ever going to buy an existing practice because there's comfort and safety, I suppose, in knowing that you've already got a patient base who are accustomed with visiting the practice. Other people are absolutely only ever interested in starting their own practice because they've got a dream or a vision and they want to design it from the ground up as to the type of practice they like to have, the type of patients they'd like to have and the type of treatments that they would like to do. Yeah. So most people generally have a bit of a guide as to which way they want to go. When I'm sitting with a client, we're obviously having a chat about, I suppose, their background, where they've been, what kind of work they've been doing, what kind of interests they'd like, you know, if they have a special interest in ortho or cosmetics, whatever the, the case may be. And then we start to build it out from there. So sometimes we'll get to meet a client who might be working with someone already and they're looking to transition that practice over. And I, I yeah. think if I'd have any word of advice, um, I would absolutely suggest to the younger generation coming through is to, to try and maybe partner up with someone else in their more mature stage of their career and get in that way. It's so much easier, I suppose, to transition into a practice ownership role when you've got a great leader, a great mentor, but you're also already inside the practice to Definitely. see how the staff how the staff work, you know, things that you might improve on if it were your own. Whereas if you go and look at a practice from the outside, you, there's a lot that goes on on the inside that you might not be across or be aware. So it's a bit of a different proposition. So we obviously have a chat about that. And then we start to go through the numbers versus setting up versus buying and, you know, different loan terms and how much they might need to borrow. Cause that can also be an impact on whether someone would set up or potentially buy a practice when it, we get to the numbers piece of that. And 
you know, everybody's risk aversion is on a sliding scale as yeah. well. So some people are pretty happy to spend a million dollars on a practice, whereas others would much prefer to spend 250 setting up a one chair site. So and grow it up slowly. Yeah. yeah, correct. Correct. Exactly. So, you know, the podcast listeners, there are some in the US and Canada and definitely Australia as well. There's a lot of talk within dentists that this is like the first generation where most dentists graduating now may not consider practice ownership. Sort of what are the demographics of your clients? Who are they? How far in their career are they? What stage of their career are they? And what sort of trends are you seeing in terms of people that are like deciding to take the, take the leap and into practice ownership versus being how you know, having the comfort of just being an associate? Yeah. Okay. It's an interesting one. I've been around for a little while. So I've been working with my clients for 15 years. So there will be people that I have set up, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ago that are yeah. still in practice ownership now. I think if we're talking about the current and the now, you make a really good point because a lot of the, I suppose, recent grads, maybe, you know, five to seven years out, if you can call that as recent as, yeah. many of them actually spend time between a couple of different practices because being able to secure a position in one place is not as easy as what it might have been, you know, 10 or so years ago. Yeah. I would say that the people that I'm speaking to who are looking to move into practice ownership, as far as demographics age-wise, are kind of late 20s into the, probably the equivalent 10 years on into the 30s and being able to, I suppose, support them through that process because there are different ways of, of looking at things. And like I said before, if you could get in with someone who's maybe coming to the other end of their careers and have that sort of success session arrangement with them that would be an amazing outcome but I think that that's probably the sweet spot sometimes we might have someone looking to move into practice ownership who's a little bit older but they might have gone the other route they might have had families or something to begin with and now they you know children are at school everything's settled down they're ready to take that next step same with postgrads so specialists obviously like you you, obviously it's studying for a few more years and then you want to go and I suppose suppose get a little bit more worldly experience and many might work in a couple of different places just to get an understanding of what goes on in private practice on the other side I think that's actually a big point for me that you know once you're you've graduated and you're out into the real world being able to possibly work in a couple of different sites is not a bad thing either because you get to see how different people run their businesses and operate their practices things that you like that you would definitely replicate if you had your own business and things that you know that you would definitely change if it was your business. For sure. And I guess, you know, since we got Kent here as well, I want to really make sure we pick both your brains and get a good, good perspective. So let's kind of do a bit of a thought sort of experiment of, you know, I'm ready to buy buy a practice, but I'm thinking I want to do a startup because I, like you mentioned earlier, I want to have the control of doing it how I want to do it. I want to pick my location exactly. I've done a bit of market research now and I know which suburb I want to be in. And Kelly, I've approached you with this project now. Let's just like, let's roll through it. So how would it work now? When would Ken come into the piece? And then we'll talk to Ken about sort of the fit out and and that aspect of it as well. Yeah, cool. Perfect. So if, so, so as part of our initial conversation, I would definitely be suggesting that um, obviously the the fit outside of things and making sure you've got a specialist through there. Do you have a good accountant that's making sure that we've got the right structure and everything in place? Who are you chatting to about equipment as well? Because your equipment people and your fit out people are going to have to work closely together to make sure that the design and the flow works and everything can be incorporated as seamlessly and as stress-free as possible. So when I approach you first to get an idea of what lending is possible, and then I'll try and take Kent to a site to get his idea of a fit out cost and all that. Would that be the normal workflow there? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for most of our clients, they probably know they're going to be okay for the money. So that's mm-hmm. probably not the biggest piece of that puzzle, but just, I suppose, getting an idea of costings, you know, it's not, there's, there's not too many practices that we can say we've set up in the last few years where they've come in under 300,000. Most new setups, if you've got to do a fit out and equipment, you're kind of pitching in at least 350 to 450, even to 500 now, depending exactly what sort of equipment you're going to take and really how much work that that space will need but that's kind of a given the last few years we've had clients maybe take rooms within a medical practice where you do have you know I suppose foot traffic of patients walking through and obviously a a built-in referral source if those rooms are already fitted out you will obviously have the equipment component so that's a kind of soft landing if you will to get in to start to build your business but you know, I think we've probably seen that transition has, has probably cooled off a little bit in the last year or so. Okay. Kent, so we've, uh, I'll, I'll bring you into this now. I think this is a, we obviously want to pick your, pick your brain on this topic. So I've, I've talked to Kelly now and I've got a bit of an idea of sort of what's possible. I've got her advice on, you know, should I actually commit to this and, and do a startup? I've found a site, I've got three sites and I bring you to see them. Uh, can you tell us sort of initially, what are some of the things that we should look out for when trying to look at some sites? I think one of the, the initial challenges that most practitioners have, having not done the process before, is trying to understand how much space that they need mm. to begin with. And that starts with, well, what is your vision for the practice in itself? Initially and then long-term, mid to long-term. So do you, are you the type of dentist that wants to be working a four or five chair practice? Or are you someone who's happy to have a two chair practice, not wanting to grow it any larger than that? That'll determine really what sort of size you're looking at, because there can be staged approach to the way in which you approach a, a five chair project that you may, you know, if you're starting from scratch, not having not having a client base or very small client base, then you can stage the project over a period of time. So the space, the amount of space that you're going to require is probably the key thing to begin with. And as a rule of thumb, with a three chair practice, we try to aim for at least 100 square meters if not closer to 120, because it gives you a bit more flexibility with the design of the, of the space. And then up from there, the size increases, of course. So it's it's always a hard one to look at. I'm looking at 200 square meters. I want to have a six-chair practice. Is this possible? Maybe. So it depends on the site itself, what latent conditions are there, any structural elements that are in there that we have to accommodate for the design, and trying to determine what's the best approach to that site itself. So as far as latent conditions are concerned, we have to look at things such as available parking because council approvals are sometimes the largest stumbling blocks. And we have to look at, is it going to accommodate uh, disabled access? Is there a level entry? Uh, Does it have enough space for you to to achieve what you want to achieve? Now, in some dental practices, they're going to want to have larger staff areas or an oral surgery room that's slightly larger than the normal surgery, or they might want to have a cone beam unit in there as well. So that'll depend on all those things that get thrown into it. Does the plant room need to be internal? So you got the CBCT, like yeah. just the different metrics so that you look a, at. Sure. Yeah. And I think that if, if the site can accommodate what you want in your brief for now and in the future, then where do you, where do you go from there? All those scopes of work that are going to be required to be able to build the practice. And then tying a budget to that. Because in the beginning, without anything designed and specified, it's not throwing a dart at a board. It's it's a more of an educated and experienced estimate of what 
project budget's going to be as well. And obviously that has to bounce off of what, what they're able to then borrow and how much money that they have at their disposal from there. So, yeah. Perfect. And Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's good. And in terms of a time frame, so from, you know, we've secured the funds. We know we have the funding in place to, to get the project started. You've come out to the site that we've, you know, prospected and you've kind of approved it in terms of it's, it's functional, it's viable to, to do the fit out. What's like from start to finish, what's an like expected sort of turnaround time? So existing space that we're redesigning and building and fitting out, it'll depend on a couple of factors. First one being any council approvals that are required, because that can take a considerable amount of time to wait to process as well for the project. So that when you're finally on site to build it, you have that roadmap. Typically with say a three chair practice of 100 to 150 square meters, fit out time on site is approximately six to eight weeks. And then leading, coming back from that, we have a period of design documentation, which can take two to three months as well. So we generally advise six, six months at a minimum to go from start to finish for that size project. Perfect. And it's dropping out again. <laughs> <laughs> so we're looking at about six months then for a, you know average three chair practice to, to get it up and running. With regards to parking and things, what are, is there any like advice like for people who are looking at sites, just scoping out different areas and looking at different sites that are available for lease that can kind of help out or any like tips and tricks with regards to that? Yeah, look, I think appropriate parking is going to be related to a couple of things in, here in Australia, and I'm sure it's, it's similar around the, the world in Canada, the US, say. It depend on A, the number of practitioners that are going to be operating in that space, or B, as it would say in the state of Victoria here, for every 100 square meters of net floor area, that's usable floor area, you require a 3.5 car park. So in 150 square meter practice, you would need approximately six car parks. And is that available on site? If not, then what's the process from there? Sometimes if you have a space that's located within a shopping precinct and there's certain dispensations that council will allow for, you still have to go through the process, but they generally accommodate that because everybody else has the same challenges. However, it can be the undoing of a project in the early stages if council will not support it. So you've got to be, be conscious of that in the beginning. Yeah. And so as a, as a matter of a checklist, what are some of the things that need to be in place, like confirmed, finalized before we like you know start the construction, start the fit out process? So you're saying that once the design documentation is, is ready or in selecting the site and determining you want to go forward with that? Let's do both. Let's start with the site and then next step. Okay. So look, as far as the site's concerned, once you've had an assessment as to whether it can achieve your brief, it's got enough space for your brief. And secondly, an estimated, or what we would call within the industry, an opinion of probable cost for the fit-out works themselves based on your brief. Now, that, that opinion of probable cost may vary depending on the number of chairs that they're going to start with. So say they have a five-chair practice, they're going to start with two because it's a, it's a young dentist just starting out. Yeah. Um, and eventually they'll expand as the business grows. So then you can stage the joinery and the equipment that goes into those other rooms to minimize your budget and, and reduce it somewhat up front. And then once they've established that they have the budget, the space is correct. Then, of course, the other thing is ensuring that they select the appropriate company to be able to, to take this forward for them um, because there's a, a, a tremendous amount of um, faith that's put into companies like ours to ensure that we're going to deliver what we say. Because there's a lot of intangibles up front when you haven't done the process before. 
And I guess the other piece of advice I could give, have patience, because it always takes longer than you want it to. <laughs> so, you know, earlier today, I talked to Glenn, and we talked a little bit about a specialist lender versus a retail lender in terms of like go, just going to a, a bank. So, I mean, I guess I I'll, can't I'll get your advice on this again, because it would be similar is, you know, going to just like a, a regular like construction company versus coming to someone who specializes in a medical and dental practice fit outs and things. What are some of the, I guess, red flags to look out for when you're approaching a builder to know that to avoid them and, and not to go ahead with that look i think the first thing is clearly there has to be a level of experience that they've had and whether that's time in the industry a company that's been solid and operating for a period of time because unfortunately australia and I'm, I'm not sure how long you were you born here i mean or did you spend some time in canada or i'm from canada i've been here yeah. in australia for about seven years now yeah there was a period of time where building was had a very bad name because there was builders going bust quite frequently and coming back as other entities and yeah. people were losing money. So there's been a lot of controls put in place, which is great. But as far as selecting someone, I think as long as they've got a, they're a reputable business that's been around for some time, as I said, there are some lending protections in place anyways. But I would say that someone who's a good communicator, because there's a lot of information that's going to pass hands over during that period. And I think that the other thing too is for the, the young dentist to be able to ask their colleagues, ask the finance suppliers as well, because people like Kelly will have a long history of having worked with a lot of different companies in our industry, and she'll be able to give a, a, an unbiased view of who they're thinking of using. So I think it's a matter of trust and longevity and good information and quality product. Go have a look at what they've done previously yeah. and talk to those people. I always say everybody's got a website and there's, Tons of 50 or 60 projects on my website. I will always say, look, I'm happy to give you ref referees. Of course, there are always going to be people that are going to say lovely things about us. <laughs> but, you know, talk to your colleagues, talk to other people in the industry, whether it's suppliers in finance or equipment. Look at some of the projects on our website and go and approach some of those clients and say, how was your experience? And they'll give you a, a, an unbiased view of it. For sure. And I guess it is, you know, with, with most things, it is what you pay for. So it might be a little bit more expensive upfront to go with someone like yourself or, you know, someone who works in the industry a lot versus just like a general contractor that you might find to save a few dollars upfront. Out of curiosity, do you have any like uh, interesting like disaster stories to share with us? I think as, as far as people setting up practices, unfortunately, it has happened in the past where clients have decided to go in a direction with a company who requested large amounts of deposit money and then quite quickly went bust. So that, that's probably the worst case scenario I've ever heard over my time. But I've also been involved in projects where we've come in partway through, where a client that we, we, didn't, we weren't successful in gaining had went in another direction and then halfway through the project, came back to us. So unfortunately, a lot of substandard work being done for, for a very low price. There's a great meme on Facebook at the moment, you talk clients, clients' expectations versus clients' budget. Yeah. You know, and it's a, it's a painting of a, of a beautiful horse on the rear end. Yeah, I've seen that one. And in the front end, it's like a, it's like a five-year-old's done a drawing. Yeah. As, as dentists, you know, we, within the industry, we know like good quality dentistry versus just like, you know, volume quick dentistry that might be cheaper. And we, we understand that difference. So it's interesting that we wouldn't apply that same logic to these other things in our life where like, 
you know, you get what you pay for. Like if I'm going to pay for a high quality service, that's going to be a better finish, better outcome. Uh, yes, it might cost me more, but then this is more reliable, more long longevity versus trying to just shop on price and find find the sort of the cheapest option available. Kelly, so I've seen Kent now. Kent's approved my site. We were signing off on the paperwork. The fit out's going to get started soon. What should we be doing as practice owners in that six to seven months to set ourselves up for success from your experience? Great question too. So there's plenty. Um, don't sleep too much because you probably won't have time for it. <laughs> but like I suppose that obviously you've got that sorted, you've got that squared away and it's being worked on. Um, there's always a bit of a transition period between your current employment or place of practice versus transitioning into your own. Like from my point of view, I would definitely recommend that you try and retain employment whilst you can, even whilst you, your business opens its door on its first day. Yeah. You might not be fully booked on five days, right? So if you can retain some income coming through, that'll obviously take some of the pressure off and alleviate a bit of stress on cash flow. So if you can do a couple of days a week where you are and then slowly build yours out, you'll obviously have all the marketing to adhere to as well, setting up bank accounts, opening bank accounts, high caps with the health insurance if you're going to go that way as well, FPOS terminals and all that fun stuff. Those things don't happen overnight either. There's a bit of work involved in getting onto that. So I suppose being able to get all of those things into place, obviously liaising with your equipment suppliers, working out your consumable packages and what you want and what you need to have in place, um, setting up all your practice management software too, which is a super huge thing because I think if you can get that right on a fully integrated package to get going, then that will obviously make things easier going forward. The big key, I suppose, for, for all of this when setting up a practice in my line of thinking and having helped many people over the years And it kind of touches on what Kent was saying before, because not everybody wants to have a six chair practice or an eight chair practice. Not everybody knows that they do or they don't want that yet either, right? So being able to have that space is amazing. And when you're starting a practice, you obviously have a vision of what you would like to have. And there's one particular instance that really jumps out at me. It was a a couple of clients who were looking to set up a practice and they wanted a million dollars to fit out this amazing space and set it all up. And it was going to have, I think, four chairs. Amazing. They were looking for 100% finance and it's not normal for someone to spend a million dollars on day one. It's also not normal for someone, particularly, I suppose, in metropolitan Melbourne, if you want to go buy your own building and then fit it out and equip it, it's easily a like 1.5 to 1.8 million job. Yeah. And if we start to think about repayments when you're borrowing that on day one, it's pretty, it's pretty cumbersome and it's, it's a lot of pressure. And so these particular clients wanted a million dollars. We went through all the info and and obviously that was their dream and their vision. Unfortunately, I had to have a bit of a tough conversation to say, hey, that's not the norm and maybe we should wind this back a little bit. And this is kind of where we could help fund it for you. I was politely told thanks, but no thanks. And that another lender had approved it for them. Yeah. And I was like, that's fine. Wish you all the best. A month or so later, they came back saying, actually, you know what, we've looked at our numbers and perhaps you're right yeah so maybe we should be spending three or four hundred thousand because when you actually look at the monthly repayments it's it's significant yeah yeah, 
Yeah, correct. And and I think this is a, a key piece to me. We will get there in the end, but we just might have to do it in stages. And if there's one thing I can tell you, you will be happier. You will bounce out of bed in the morning knowing that you're not spending the whole two weeks of every month to pay back the bank or the lender. Yeah, that you there's a there's a subconscious energy that emits from people when they love what they do and they're not overwhelmed and feeling that pressure. And so I'm very pleased to say that that, that particular business went on to. Um, end up having over 10 chairs in operation yeah and I like I have no shadow of a doubt if they'd gone the other path it definitely could have gone very pear-shaped very quickly and could potentially have put them into a really bad situation that you can never get out of like you're kind of hamstrung because you don't have the excess cash to keep investing into your practice to keep you know making repayments paying staff and growing your business so by doing it in smallest stages and building it up over time will deliver a far superior long-term outcome with happiness and joy like the last thing I want is anyone coming back to me saying why did you give me that money (laughs) it's too much it's too much pressure and and I think you know I've seen a few instances over the years too where people have maybe gone with a bank type solution and the banks are great and obviously they have a particular parameter and policy but if you're throwing your house into the mix and all the properties that you own if they don't understand your industry they're actually using the those assets as security that's their full pack position they don't mind if they have to call those assets in to get their money back and that's actually a really scary situation if you're dealing with a lender who doesn't understand what's reasonable for you to generate in your first year or what's a reasonable spend just because you're a doctor doesn't mean it's a yes and it's a tick and a flick and you can have a million or two million dollars you actually want to be able to work with someone who understands that process and you know I suppose in those six months getting back to your question sorry Omid but but in you know working through your equipment list what's your budget going to look like for the first four months recruitment yeah. So, so often when we've got clients who are setting up a practice, they've generally met some key people along the way. Their um, DA might be someone who's super fond of them. They connect really well. And so they're happy to move across and help set things up. Might be a practice manager that's been met along the way as well. So just, I suppose, putting your feelers out into your networks to start to pick the bits that you need and, you know, get those ducks lined up, ready to go. Yeah, definitely, definitely a lot of moving parts in this whole process and starting a practice. What is the do most people go for 100% um, like they're not putting any money down or what, like what's the norm in terms of getting the financing? Like, Are people coming into the, to the party with a bit of cash that they've put aside to to help start the practice so they have less debt or are most people relying on 100% funding? So it's interesting because I suppose it depends where you're at in your stage of life as well and how quickly, you know, it's kind of hard to save a lot of money when you're maybe not working full time or you've not long graduated um, or you've had to relocate and start to build up your hours or you've joined a new practice and starting to build out your patient base. Um, But most people would borrow 100% there's got to be some comfort in having cash access to quick cash. Yeah. Because if things take a little bit longer to build up over time, we can certainly support our clients with what we call lines of credit or working capital that you can drop in and grab some cash, put it back when you don't need it. But if you don't have any backstop for yourself by grabbing more of our cash, you're still just digging yourself a bigger hole. Yeah. 
So any cash that you do have put aside and whether it's sitting in an offset against a home loan at the moment or it's sitting in redraw or it's just sitting in a bank account, the better, the more you have, the better you will fare to be able to ride out. And like if we look about this year as well, if you said to us a year ago that our dentists are going to be restricted from practising other than emergency and then have to go relive it almost you know, the second time over, maybe not to the same extreme, but it was still a very stressful time. Those that have had savings behind them have really given themselves the best shot of being able to come through the other side. Yeah. So, so if I, if I'm speaking to someone who wants to borrow hundred percent and they've got $10,000 cash in their bank account, they really need to be working on those savings to bolster, to give themselves the best shot at making this work because there's invariably incidentals that turn up and like to Kent's point, obviously you'll have your fit out, but you're also going to need to furnish it. Like, so you're going to need weight room furniture. You're going to need white goods in the tea room. (laughs) You know, you're going to need some paintings and, reception desk and computer and IT, hardware, software. So all of these little things that kind of don't seem like much in isolation, but when you start to add them up, there's a few thousand dollars that also need to be accounted for there as well. Yeah, that's excellent advice because I think if you have money set aside, you know, $50,000, $100,000, you might be better served to then keep that cash for your just like a rainy day fund once you've opened a practice versus putting it towards the fit out costs and things and just using the financing to, to get the practice opened up. I think that's, that's sort of great advice. What's the average time it takes someone to pay off a practice? Like yep. I, I got two chair practice that, you know, you spent maybe $600,000 from like fit out for equipment, everything to mm-hmm. open your doors. How long would that roughly take? So it's an interesting question because I suppose when it comes to lending for our doctors, there's more choice than they've ever had at different institutions. I probably am quite fortuitous in that I have access to our own funding, but can also access the banks. So most clients would generally pay that down over five to seven years. The reason this is an important piece is that all of those assets are depreciating in nature. So you can take an interest only loan for five years, which is amazing because it makes your repayments very affordable. But in five years time, I mean, if you still owe $600,000 on that fit out and equipment, it's not worth that. Yeah. yeah. So like it does start to put you into a little bit of a risky position because if you wanted to sell your practice and relocate or move into state or internationally, you're probably not going to get your money back on those assets at that stage, right? So we obviously are super flexible, I suppose, in that we structure lower repayments initially for our clients to get them through the hardest part, which is, you know, generally the first 12 to 18 months. And then we can up the repayments when cash flow is good and it's ticking along nicely, right? So, but most people would kind of have those debts retired between five to seven years. There's a lender that will do up to 10 years and same again, I feel like it's too long for those sort of assets because they're not really worth anything at that stage either. Um, But I suppose the point of that is that it keeps the repayments down again. So if you can kind of have the option to review in two or three years time and increase the repayments, you'll obviously pay less interest over the life of the loan, but you've also given yourself the headroom you needed to grow your practice and be happy and comfortable rather than putting yourself under incredible Mm -hmm. amount of stress. Yeah. Yeah. With, uh, with interest rates sort of being where they are now over the past you know, um, year or so, things are kind of getting friendly in terms of borrowing money to start businesses and things to grow the economy. <clears throat> Do you think it's like a good time if someone's like sort of on the fence, so like they're not sure whether or not they should jump in, would they, should they take advantage of this time and what the rates are at now to kind of lock things in place and get started? Yeah, I think, you know, you know what this year, I suppose, has been quite 
interesting in observing and watching is that particularly here in Melbourne, we've obviously had two versions of lockdown. And to be honest, I actually thought it would take until probably May 2021 for things to kind of come back online and people be feeling comfortable and um, confident, I suppose, about buying or setting up or buying a building or whatever. But it's really been the last half of this year has been incredibly busy. And so I think with the second lockdown, people realise that we're going to have to work through this. You can't put your life on hold waiting for this thing to go away. And we have to work with it and we have to deal with it and keep moving forward forward so as interest rates are uh, like obviously super competitive right now so people are obviously looking to take advantage of that I think if you were going to do it but you had your reservations those reservations would still be there today anyway so you know whether there's things that you need to get comfortable with or people you need to talk to to start to figure I suppose to work through those gaps to to get some comfort into it Um, but I, I I would have thought it would be quite an encouraging position now for people to be doing that The one thing that I've seen with people setting up practices probably in the last three months is that if people do have cash, we've obviously got an instant asset write-off stimulus Mm -hmm. from our government here. So if people do have cash and have excess cash for working capital, they're using some of their savings to just pay for cash for their equipment. So that's Mm -hmm. one less repayment that they have. They're going to get a tax benefit for it as well and we'll fund the fit out for them in a way that makes it fully deductible. So we can get clever with structuring as well. So it's been a super busy time and so I, and I think people are like you know I, I was going to do it anyway I'm not going to wait another year because I might miss my opportunity yeah. I need to go for it thank you manage and yep. I guess the the final question sort of around this this piece is what percentage of people are buying the building or they're just you know taking out long-term leases because I from my understanding definitely correct me if I'm wrong is one benefit of not buying and just you know leasing a place is sometimes you get help with the fit out costs and things from the landlord and that goes towards it which could help alleviate some of the expenses but obviously not you don't have an asset like the tangible asset of owning the building what's like what's like a percentage split or sort of what's your advice around purchasing the building and then putting the practice in it versus leasing an existing space yeah so if you're starting out in business if you're looking i suppose on the eastern seaboard of australia you're probably not going to get much change from a million or 1.5 to acquire your building Mm -hmm. if you're borrowing 100 percent, chances are the rent to borrow to take that space will be less than your mortgage repayments yeah Yeah. Um, but if you live in rural or regional australia what we do see is that the rents are obviously good returns but it means our clients can often buy their buildings and be paying less then it totally makes sense for our clients to own their own premises and you know we can lend them up to 100% outside of superannuation or if they want to use their super fund to contribute we'll lend them 90% which is amazing but at the end of the day if it means on day one of starting a practice when you have zero patients that those repayments quite significant you might not want to put yourself under that pressure ultimately you want to get to that stage and maybe you'll take a smaller space rent for five years with a view to see what's going on in your little suburb around you Mm -hmm. to buy a building and relocate it at a later date yeah Yeah. so that's often a nice little transition process the end game I suppose ultimately is that when you get to the other end of your career if you're able to sell your business you've paid off your building there's a nice little passive income stream for the rest of your days yeah. That's and great. and from from my point of view, the businesses that have security in owning their buildings, when they sell them, even if the purchaser doesn't want to buy your building straight away, they know it's you that they're dealing with. Those businesses tend to move hands with a premium because there's security and knowing I can go back to the old 
dentist and say, hey, I'm ready to buy your building. Whereas if you're dealing with a third party who's a conglomerate and you have no relationship and they decide it's going to be a development site in four years' time and they don't renew your lease, it does leave you in a bit of a precarious position. And as a purchaser buying in, I'm asking you to find out what's going to happen to that lease because I want to know you have that security. And if you don't have it, then you should maybe pay a little less for your practice because you're going to have to relocate it. That's yeah. great advice. That's stuff that you don't think about. Like if, if they want to you know, flip the property in a few years and you've spent all the money in marketing and built the location mm. base and then you got you to gotta move, that's that's a big, uh, big issue. Absolutely. Uh, I think I was just going to say, and yeah. Kent is probably a good one to have a chat to around, I suppose, the, the differences between the leasing and incentives and if they get involved and can help negotiate that for clients too, because you don't know what you don't know. So yeah. you might get a $15,000 incentive and go, well, that's amazing but maybe if you've got professionals in that do know and they have a fair idea of costings then that would be something that maybe they could offer as part of their service as well to really push and drive to design I suppose the practice that you need yeah. try and keep your costs down that would help okay do you have any information around that sort of space of you know you're leasing a, a, a premises for the practice yep. what sort of expectations can you have in terms of um, incentives from the landlord to help you out with the fit out and everything there's there's no there's no real rule of thumb as to to what they should give. It's a, it's an individual space by space landlord by landlord uh, basis. But we generally advise our clients to request at least twelve months rent free when they're assuming a property for lease. Yeah. So if they if part of the negotiation is the, the negotiation will always come back and perhaps they end up with six or eight months. But that gives them ample time to be able to have design and documentation in the place fit out before they have to start paying for it. Yeah. Secondly, yeah. The, the term of the lease is obviously important. Uh, as you touched on before, what happens if a building's sold? You know, a five, five plus five uh, would be great, a five-year minimum with, with, with options, whether it's five plus three plus three, five plus five, and, and so on. That's always good. And the other thing is, is depending on the tenancy itself. Now, for instance, if there is no air conditioning and heating or ceilings in place, and the landlord's expectation is that well, it's up to the tenant to do that. Well, you can negotiate that back in uh, a lot of the times because it's generally a fixed asset for the building, things like mechanical and ceilings and, and those basic things. But it also means that you're not spending it yourself and your fit out costs. You know, that can, you know, ceilings and, and mechanical in 150 square meter practice can save you, you know, 30 to $40,000. And you'd rather have the landlord pay for that. Now, they're probably going to get it back in rent somehow, but you don't have to put that money up front. In one extraordinary case I have at the moment, I have a client in Queensland who landlord has they've negotiated a $240,000 feed-out nice. bonus. So they will contribute to that. Generally, that comes in free rent periods, but some landlords will give cash as well, depending on what their situation is. That's excellent. But, That's yeah. good to definitely try and explore those avenues before you, you sign. I think that again, that right. comes come back to the, the piece of like working with people who have experience in the, in the industry so they can sort of have a rough idea of what's fair and what's market expectations so you can take advantage of that. Ken, I guess the, the other question I had for you before we sort of get into the final um, year is, you know, we've hired you guys and or equivalent sort of company. We've done the fit out six months down the track. There's something, you know, something goes wrong or I want to expand how does that work? Is there like a warranty or something like that that comes with some of the fit out things? Yeah, look, you're, by law, and, and it will be different from, from country to country, but in Australia, you have to give at least a 12-month warranty on all works, Yeah, all, all fit out works. 
and certain things will have longer warranties um, like mechanical equipment and uh, things like that. But uh, the reality is, is working in a small market like Australia, where everybody knows everybody, uh, it's in our best interest as a company to be able to fix problems as they arise, whether it's a year, two years, three years, four years down the road, because ultimately we want to be able to make sure that that client either returns to us when they do the next practice or refers them to refers us to a colleague. And, and we always look at it on a situation by situation basis, but I've rarely seen any situations past our warranty periods where we've charged people for coming and fixing small issues. Large issues is a different story, of course, because the real costs associated with those things, yeah. as opposed to a bit of time and maybe a, a the, the casual a casual trade attending side. But yeah, look, yeah, there are statutory requirements, so you are covered and backed up. And once again, once in, in dealing with a reputable firm, you're going to be able to ensure that someone's going to be around in 12 months' time to be able to to support you. Yeah, definitely. So normally, how I wrap this up is obviously, you know, you both have, you know. Your, your field of expertise and knowledge and things. So I want to make sure we don't sort of haven't missed anything. So I guess, Kent, since you're, you're on already, I'll ask you, is there any sort of final pieces of advice or information that I haven't sort of touched on that you'd like to share with sort of someone looking into starting a practice and looking into fit out costs and everything associated? First thing is patience. You have to have patience yeah. because finding the right site, finding the right partners, getting that process completed, can be an excruciating long period of time. So having patience for one thing. Secondly, expect the unexpected when it comes to any associated costs. I think Kelly touched on previously. The re- and, assure, and that sometimes that comes with who you're dealing with as well, that they're being upfront about all the relative costs you're going to have when you start your business, whether it's internal process and staff driven costs like IT, or whether it's fit out costs like loose furniture for your waiting room, and you know soap dispensers and things like that that maybe they didn't include in that initial budget and stuff. So they're, they're, I always say expect the unexpected and be prepared. Enjoy the process because you're a long time with the result. Yeah, you know I think that ties into patience and taking your time in the beginning to make sure that you get exactly what it is that you want. Because as soon as you start seeing patients from day one and you're sitting chair side and you reach over for something that you wished was there, <laughs> you're right process take take the time excellent thanks Kent. and kelly i guess same question to you is there any sort of topics or anything that we didn't touch on that you think would be high value for people to, um, before we wrap up yeah totally i think the big key and i suppose what i spend a lot of my time doing is education because you don't know what you don't know and i think you know working with people that know what they're doing generally will bring a team so like with myself i've got accountants that i cross paths with lawyers fit out equipment people so can kind of connect people so that you can ask the right questions and start to learn I suppose fact find and collect the data to start to make the decisions that work for you and how you need to move forward Um, from a finance point of view the biggest thing obviously the the one question I'm asked every day is what's the rate what's the rate what's the rate what's the rate yeah and it's it's important but it's actually if you're only asking that question you're really doing yourself a disservice so you need to ask about the rate and any fee whether they're ongoing um, or annual um, or one-off, you need to ask about pay down terms because as we've spoken today, your monthly repayments will have a significant factor if you're borrowing a lot of money or 100% will have a significant factor on how quickly your practice grows or how stressful that process can be for you. So you need to ask about pay down terms. You need to know what security. So are they going to use your house? Do you need to put in the first $100,000? Do they want your spouse's 
guarantee, um, you know, all of those things as well. And the fourth thing is uh, financial covenant. So do you want to have to hand over your financials every year for the lender to say, yes, Omid, you're doing okay, we'll continue to support you? Or would you just like to get on with it and know that you're doing a good job, you've got your accountant and your bank, everyone behind you, rather than having to declare every year that you're doing a good job. So it's rates and fees, pay down terms, security and covenants. They're the top four things that you should be asking when it comes to a money point of view. That's great advice. And, you know, I think you know, with every interview, I try and have like a little quick light bulb moment that makes sense. And it's like a lasting sort of impression. Um, and I think that that's the main thing that I picked up from, from this chat and uh, with Gwen previously today is we shouldn't always be like trying to find the cheapest. It's not always the best outcome. It may save you money in the short term, but long term, either in, in time, like, you know, if instead of going with Kent, I go with a, you know, non-dental construction company, but it takes me an extra four months to open my doors. Like that four months, that the you know income loss from that sort of four months might be way you know outweigh the the money I would have saved by just going with totally. like, uh, cancer or same thing with you know lending and things you know the support services and things that you guys would provide me with access to or recommendations to lawyers and different services and whatnot will definitely outweigh maybe the extra percentage point on the on the money I'm I'm borrowing so I think the same you know we tell our patients not to like trust you know shop on price I think it's the same we got to bring that same principle into our own sort of life and our expenditures and things. So definitely, definitely a lot of great advice, a lot of things to think about. It's, it's a lot of moving parts. I think it's scary for a lot of dentists to, to take this leap into practice ownership. And we're dealing with people we don't deal with on a day-to-day basis. We're dealing with concepts and things that we don't necessarily know anything about. And given that we're so like meticulous about our day-to-day job, it's, it's hard to like maybe give up control in that oh. sense. Think, no, I can do it. I can, I can handle the construction guys. I can find my own loan. Sometimes it is better and easier just to pay for the services and just let the experts do what they got to do. Totally. It's a really good summary. Yeah. Kelly and Kent, thank you so much, both of you for, uh, for joining us. I know it's a Saturday. It's quite nice out here in Melbourne as well. So I really appreciate you giving up the time. Any final last minute thoughts or anything before we wrap up? Just thought I'd let you see my beautiful <laughs> before we get no, I think it's it's just important. I actually think what you've just said, Omid, is probably a big piece of why people maybe try to do so much on their own. And it's actually okay to say, hey, I'm going to need a bit of help or support or guidance on this one, because that's what we're here for. I don't know. I'm not very good with teeth. Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of lost on that front, but I have a great dentist and that's why I go to him. He's the expert in that. And, and, you know, we're the experts from this side. So we've all got to, you know, we're not a, we're not a jack of all trades for everybody. Yeah. We work on in in our little um, niches and we're very good at it. Excellent. Thanks for for joining us. And um, we'll put your information in the show notes. So if anyone has funny follow-up questions or anything, they can definitely hopefully reach out and, and chase that up with you guys. Perfect. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbedentist.com. Have a great day.